<laughs> good morning, good morning, Rabbi Welcome to Breakfast on the Class. Breakfast on the Class today is dedicated for the Rifuah Shalema of Yaakov ben Polin Shoshana and in loving memory and Lilui Nishmat of Mariel's grandma, Bolisa Bad Victoria, sponsored by Mariel Dweck as well. Uh, sponsored <clears throat> and dedicated for the Hatzlacha of the operation and full and speedy recovery uh, for our mother, Shulamit Bat Fega Liba, and the donor, Alter Elimelech Ben Liba Nacha, our Superman of a brother-in-law, by the Bibi Ritholtz and Riedler families. You know that it was going to be a good match, because they are both the children of someone called Liba, whose heart, and as the, as the Gemara says, Rahmana HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Liba Bai, is looking for heart. So in both of these instances, we see that HaKadosh Baruch Hu desires uh, uh, the Lev, HaKadosh Baruch Hu should guarantee us for both the recipient and the generous giver of this gift, the gift of life. Breakfast of the Class also sponsored by Yoron Dahan, dedicated in honor of his wife, Deborah Miriam, and in celebration of the birth of their son, Bissimantov, Mazatov, Mabruk, Okay, Rabutai, we have a very interesting uh, expression. And I saw that Rabbi Galinsky points out and it led me to think maybe a little bit of along of uh, different lines than what he's talking about, but the idea <clears throat> was sparked by a line that he said. And he asks a very simple and a very obvious question. The Pasuk says when it comes to the miracle of kinim, of the lice, etzba Elohim he. It is the finger of God. That's what they said. When they were unable <clears throat> to reproduce to the miracle of the lice, they said, it's the finger of God. What can we do? We can't, nothing we can do. You know, that, that's Hashem. Uh, you know, only God could do that. It's the finger of God. And the Haggadah points out that when we get to the ocean, it actually says over there, and Vayar Yisrael etayada gedola. And the Jewish people saw the great, the mighty hand of God. So, but in Egypt, it mentions the finger of God. And when it comes to the ocean, it mentions the hand of God, illustrating that if there was, uh, you know, 10 miracles in, the, in, in Egypt, and each miracle is considered finger of God, so how many makot did they have at the, at the, at the Yamsuf? And there's a makhloket, but either way, the quotient, the ratio, is one to 10. Because how many fingers are there on, in the hand? There's 10 fingers. And there's one for each makah, there's one makah. So if in Egypt there was 10, how many was there at the ocean? 50. The second opinion comes along and says, no, each makah had within it many different facets. So in Egypt, there were 40 makot. Each one had four different facets to it. So 40 times, uh, sorry, was it 40? Yeah, 40 times five. It compares it to a quotient of five. Sorry, not 50, five. So if 10, 10 equals 50. If there's 40, 40 at the Yom Suf, they have 200. If there's 50, according to the last opinion, there's 50 in Egypt, each one comprising of five different components, so then on the ocean, there was 250. But my friends, <clears throat> the question uh, that we have to ask is that um, it seems that we're overcalculating. Because it doesn't say at the ocean that there was the hands of God. It says it was a hand. So if etzba is one, how many can we be left with? Right? We could be left with a total of five. There's not more than five fingers on a hand. Now, the question to me <clears throat> was perhaps a little bit almost amusing. Because, all right, we're taking it that seriously. Like, you know, over there there was a finger, each makah is a finger. At the Yamsuf, 
there was, it says there was a hand. So the, ma- the maths is a one to five ratio. That's all it means to say. <clears throat> but he asks one step further. He's like, yes, but you're telling me that each makah is etzba. There's only one, there's only five fingers on a hand. He says, and this was really the point I wanted to draw from it. Not the technical, like, is there this many? Is there this many? Was he says that there's a fundamental difference between a finger and a hand. And that's really where I want to start today. Not with the technicalities, not with the one, five, 10, 50, 100, exactly. Rather, with this point. He said there's a fundamental difference between a finger and a hand. He says a finger you use to tap someone on the shoulder. A finger you use to point. A finger you use to warn. A hand you use to slap. The finger was the Egyptians' sorceress telling Paro, look, this is a warning from God. Now look, however bad lice is, it's uncomfortable, it's scratchy, it doesn't end the person's life. But we're going to get to a place, say the Khartoumim, where this is not going to be a tap on the shoulder. This is going to be a makah like you can't believe. They already were warning Paro, we see in this miracle something which is impossible to do. And it's also, if he's capable of doing this, and he's using it only to make our lives uncomfortable, then recognize this is Etzba Elohim, the finger of God. The warning. It's the, uh, you know, when they shoot a shot in the air. You know, the soldiers or at a, at, a, at a crowd, everything's getting wild. What do they do first? They take the gun, they take the shot. They call it, they fire a warning shot. What's happening next? Bam. That's what's happening next. Now, I saw in this something remarkable. You know, oftentimes, a person is looking at difficult things in their life, and they're seeing in these difficult things, annoyance. It's annoying that this happened at work. It's a shame that this happened, you know, in my business, or with my, uh, with my hobby, or with my, with my house, with my real estate. They see these things as being annoying. And when do we start to recognize that, look, what can I do? You know, it's out of my hands. It's only when they've already been given the makkah, they've already been hit. If you notice the finger, you're not going to get the hand. So forget again the minutia. Just let's focus in on these two elements. In life, a person first gets the warning and then gets the hit. But there's a reason why it works that way. I'll let me give you an example. I want you to imagine um, someone turns up at your workplace. You know, they're supposed to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, IT. They're supposed to come. You're hiring a guy to deal with your computer systems, right? You're hiring a guy, and the guy turns up, and, and, uh, and he says, uh, you know, I'm ready to get, you know, where, where do you want me? And the, and the guy says, look, why don't you start with the computers? The guy says, computers? I don't do computers. I'm a janitor. <laughs> right? What are you going to do with that guy? You're going to start you know, tell, giving him a crash course in computers? You're going to start telling him, you know, uh, look, look at these YouTube videos? <laughs> right? What are you going to do with the guy? You're going to call the agency that sent you this guy and tell him, you sent me a guy who doesn't do IT, you fire him. Not so if this incapable person, incapable of doing the job, not suited for the task, is your own son. How many fathers have their son come to work with them? in the office, and shock horror, the kid is not capable, or not cut out 
for the job that the father's got for him waiting in the office. What does the father do? Just do it like this. Do it like that. You don't fire your son. But if he comes late, if he's doing it wrong, if he's not putting in the investment, you tell him, look, I can't, you know, I want to help you. End of the day, you got to come on time. Look, if you keep coming late, if you keep, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to give the job to somebody else. In the warning, in fact, on some level, even in the patch, even in the hit, if a person has their eyes open, they can see an element of love. And I want to give you an example. And he brings this example. He said that, you know, the, uh, the rabbi from the yeshiva of Navarra, he one time had the opportunity to go to the diamond district. And as he's there, he sees that they have something in Hebrew, they call it the bursa, the trading floor. Everyone's bringing their diamonds, they're arguing, everyone's got their loops out, they're looking, they're you know, fighting over the price. People are ooing and eyeing. This guy's like, look what I have, look what I found. Everyone's very excited. And he came back to the yeshiva and he said, you know what, I want to institute in our yeshiva, I want to institute a bursa. Not for diamonds, but for finding and appreciating the things that are the most valuable in the human experience. So the boys in the yeshiva would get together and they would pair off and they would talk about something brilliant that they'd learned. A great idea, a great example, something that helped the person develop their, their self-confidence. A recognition of a flaw within themselves that they could now kind of polish and make better. And he called it, they called it the bursa. And the boys would go and they would find the diamonds uh, that are they're present in life. And I always think about, you know, what an amazing idea to institute in your life. To have time when you look for the diamonds. Either way, one idea that Rabbi Glinsky heard at this bursa was the following idea. This is a young boy who's told by his father not to wander in the nearby forest. The forest has wild animals. The forest has ditches he could fall into. The, fire, the forest has, uh, you know, has robbers hiding behind all the branches, trying to rob travelers of their hard-earned money. Don't go into the forest. All right. Anyway, what do kids do? Whatever you tell them not to do, that's what they do. The kid waits till one day his father's not looking, looks this way, that way, no one's watching, he runs in the forest. Anyway, as he gets in the forest, exactly what his father told him is going to happen, happens. You, you know, you're going to think you remember the way back, but all the trees look the same, and eventually you lose your way. And the sun is setting, and it's getting dark, and the kid's looking around, and all of a sudden, all the noises of the forest start to come into sharp relief. And he hears the creaking, and he turns around, and he thinks it's someone, uh, you know, crying. And he, he hears a sound, and it sounds like the growl of a lion. And he's looking this way, and he's that way, and the kid is crying, and he's terrified. Every sound he hears, everything that, you know, every movement, every rustle of the leaves, the kid's turning around, and the fear is just consuming him. He feels like he wants to just roll up on a ball on, a, in the, on, a, in a, ball on the floor and wait for time to pass. All of a sudden, as he's walking, is that a bear, is that a, is that a tree, is that a rock, is that a, a robber? He, he suddenly gets this big smash. A giant paw hits him across the top of the head. That's it. His life is over. And he turns around. And who is it? It's his father. What is the kid's first inclination? He throws his arms around his father, tells him how happy he is to see him, how scared he was, how he's never going to make the mistake again. Because even in that hit, even in that makkah, there's love. How do you know? Because the father bothered to come find him. 
The father bothered after warning him, telling him what was going to happen, after giving him the head by the finger. The kid wandered in the forest. But the father took the time to come and give him a slap across the head to tell him, I told you what would happen. When a person experiences a makkah, they are literally hearing God talk to them. God is saying, He's communicating, there's something wrong here. There needs to be a change of direction. So the Khartoumim point out, they say, Kinim is Elokim. He's warning us, something's coming. And indeed, something does come. They find up, they wind up with Makat Bechorot at the end of it. But even the Makkah, the greatest Makot that we experience, is HaKadosh Baruch Hu wandering into the forest. You know what God could do that's worse than giving us a Makkah? Just leave us. Just leave us in the forest. Now the Gemara actually tells us, what is Yisurim? What is suffering that is God giving you a warning? And not only that, by the way, we say there's an expression that we say in, in Jewish called kapara. Kapara means that something is a forgiveness. Anything, any suffering, any difficulty, any discomfort a person experiences is kapara, is a forgiveness for the things they've done wrong. How much so, as the Gemara, even says the Gemara, if a person goes to the tailor, he has his suit done, puts on the suit, and it's a little too tight. He's annoyed. Isn't that annoying? You go to have the guy fix the suit, and it's, it's, you know, it was too tight before, it's still too tight. You're like, oh, I waited three weeks now. I come back, I need to wait another. Oh, the sleeves are too short, too long. That's Yisurim, says the Gemara. The Gemara says, but that's not even small Yisurim. That's big Yisurim. You know what, you know what, you know what, even as Yisurin says the Gemara? What happens if he ordered a cold drink and they brought him a hot drink? He ordered a hot drink and all of a sudden, as soon as he sat down with his coffee, the phone rang. Now he's got to make the phone call, he gets to the coffee, oh, his coffee's cold. Even that's considered Yisurin. Then the Gemara goes one step further. He reaches in his pocket to get three coins and as he pulls it out, he's got two coins. Now he's got to reach in his pocket again. That's Yisurim. That's kapara, that fixes, that saves. But there's one prerequisite. There's one condition for kapara to be kapara. Let's go back to our boy in the forest. He's terrified, he's crying, he's uh, God knows what. He gets slapped on top of the head. He thinks it's a bear. Is he any less afraid until he turns around? No. The one thing that takes our annoyances, our difficulties, our trials, our tribulations, and turns them from negatives into positives is the turning around of the person. The wondering, what is going on over here? We find by Moshe that Moshe gets his calling. Why? Vayar Adonai Kisar Lirot. Because God saw that Moshe had turned to see. You know, a lot of things are required for Judaism. Courage and self-discipline. A lot of things. A kind and generous disposition to be a forgiving person. A lot of things. But before anything begins, a person, a Jew, has to have their eyes open has to have their eyes open. They need to be able to recognize that something is going on over here. I mentioned one Shabbat a while back, you know, I got a phone call from Avram. 
Avram calls me and he says, look, I just booked a room in a hotel for Shabbat. And what's it called? It's an hour before Shabbat. I just booked a room in a hotel for Shabbat. He says, and the person who was supposed to come can no longer make it to the city. I said, okay, so what do you want from me? He says, I just thought, in case you know someone that needs a place to stay for Shabbat. You know, yeah, yeah, there's a, I have an empty hotel room. I said, Avram, it's like a, an hour to Shabbat. I, I, I'm, not having, I'm not actually eating at home tonight. We had a, a seven in the shul. So I can't invite the person. Who am I going to invite to the city for Shabbat and then not have a, give them a place to eat? He says, look, I just thought I would call you. I was like, okay, thank you. I, I said, probably, uh, I hang up the phone. As I hang up the phone, the phone rings. I pick up the phone again thinking it's Avram still. Guy calls me, he says, hello. I said, hello. He goes, Rabbi, I don't know if you remember me. We met a little while back. He's a very religious guy, Hasidish guy. He tells me, Rabbi, he goes, I have a little bit of a problem. What's the problem? He says, I was invited to this simcha now for Shabbat. He goes, uh, I said, okay. Um, he says, and I need a place to stay. He goes, but I don't know if there's a place that's near the shul. <laughs> I'm smiling. I said, go on. He goes, also, I don't know about a place, you know, if there's electric, you know, the keys, if there's a way to keep it, if that's, a, that's if the, if the uh, uh, Shomer Shabbat friendly hotel. I said, okay. <laughs> he goes, and I don't even need a place to eat. I just need a place to stay because I'm eating with the Simcha. Is there any chance? I know it's late, but I'm laughing on the phone. You understand? You understand this, the power of this? <clears throat> we don't notice that the Makkah is coming from God until we turn around. Until your eyes are open. If, you're not, if your eyes are not open, what do you say? Oh, yeah, oh, what, an, what an amazing coincidence. That is the power um, in the rhythm of our life to guide us. That power that helps us make decisions correctly, that helps us redirect our, It's only there if a person's willing to open up their eyes, to notice that somebody's tapping them on the shoulder. It's by Elokimi. So I want to give you a little bit of homework for this week. I want you to paraphrase, to use the language of Egyptian sorcerers from three and a half thousand years ago. I want you to a few times a day, when something happens in your life that just seems a little bit too close, a little bit too orchestrated, a little bit too, you know, fingerprint of God, recognize that it's God's fingerprint. It's by Elokimi. Those three words I want you to say. Say it through two, three times a day. And you'll start to notice that life is like that. And that not only is God doing things in the, in the, as an afterthought, but you start to realize that God does this thing that happens in films called foreshadowing. He foreshadows. He, let you, he lets you know what's actually coming ahead of time. I'm fond of telling the story because it's not only in bad things. I was on a plane and an old fella sits next to me. It was the one time I'd ever been upgraded. <laughs> I'm sitting in this, you know, I'm like, oh, brilliant. Lie flat seat. I'm going to fly out to New York from England. I get there, I lie down. As I'm lying down, this elderly fellow next to me goes, so what's your name? I was like, oh, no. <laughs> what's your name? Where are you from? And you know when you're like, you know when you're trying to be polite, but not so? 
you know, your answers are a little bit too short, you know what I mean? I'm like, Shlomo. He's like, what's your last name? Bari. Where are you from? I was like, no! I'm from Hendon. What are you doing there? You don't sound English. <laughs> anyway, obviously it's the first 10 seconds. But, you know, he's a nice guy. You get drawn in and you start having a conversation. What do you do? I tell him about our work with outreach, with, you know, working with young people who are not so religious, connecting with them, explaining, kind of talking a language that they understand. For many people that were not born into very religious families, you know, they, it's not a, they, they don't connect to it. So, you know, that's what I do. And, you know, through that, we, we inspire and give kids a Jewish connection, a Jewish identity. And he goes, oh, that's so nice. Anyway, I, I go to the bathroom. I come back from the bathroom. The guy hands me, hands me a check for $2,000. It's the only time that that has ever happened. So you, I want you to think for a second. I don't, you don't, I don't, I don't get upgraded. Like, you know what I mean? And then all of a sudden I get upgraded next to this annoying guy. And it's Hashem giving you the, that test. Are you going to actually talk? Are you going to be nice? Are you going to be polite? So I break through, I do the thing. And then the guy is like, oh, okay, I see, I see what you're doing. It's by Elokimi. I get it. But God was just getting started. God was just getting started. And with this, we'll end. The flight lands. I think we were in seat number two. The second seat on the plane. There's only one row in front of us. This fella gets up right in front of me as I got my stuff. I get my stuff out of the bin. You know, plane lands. Get my stuff out of the bin. The fella gets up and, he's, and he just beelines off the plane. And he leaves. As I see him leaving the plane... I look down on his seat and I see he's left a man bag. You know, the, the long strap with the big square? Like a Louis Vuitton man bag. He's run, I say, hey! He doesn't hear me. Anyway, I, I finish grabbing my stuff. I grab the bag. I don't even think. I'm going to go run around. You have to give it to the guy. By the time I get situated, the guys from the other lane got in front of me. I, you know, got separated from him. I'm trying to see the guy. I can't see him. I figure, okay, you know, I know where he's going. He's probably going to the, to the, to the luggage. Anyway, I'm walking through the airport with this guy's bag, you know, looking around. I can't find him anywhere. I get through security. I look, what's it called? I get through, what's it called? The customs. I finally get to the luggage. I open up the, the bag to see maybe, you know, there's a name or something, identification or a phone number. I see a license and it has a picture of this guy's face that I know, okay, that I, that I recognize. It's a non-Jewish name. Um, I want to see maybe there's something else with a business card with a phone number. I open up the main pocket. The main pocket is stacked with $100 bills. Does this happen to anyone else, by the way? <laughs> at least, at least 10 grand, okay? In this bag. <laughs> at least 10 grand, right? And, and I'm, I'm looking for this guy, you know? And I can't find him. I was like, now I know that this guy, then I'm starting to think, is it drug money? Like, what's happening? All of a sudden, who do I see in the far corner of the airport? by the place with the luggage where they people all to do the complaints. It's that guy. I run across the whole airport. I tell him, dude, you see the guy? He's like, wow, Dios mio, thank you so much. Mucho gracias. You know, you're the savior, you're this, you're that. And in my brain, the music is already playing. Da, 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 da. You know, I needed to save my daughter's life. <laughs> I'm bringing this to, you know, to pay for an operation for my grandpa. Like, you know, I'm like, no, tell me more. <laughs> he goes, you don't know. He goes, you say, he goes, without this, this whole trip would have been pointless. 
I said, it's so amazing. I was like, what are you here for? He goes, I'm going to Vegas, baby. <laughs> I said, like, give me that bag. <laughs> it's a test, isn't it? You find a bag with a lot of money in it. It's a test. It's a test of your honesty, isn't it? Test. But before I got the test, I got the strength for the test. Hashem said, look, if I need to give you money, I'll find some old guy. I'll upgrade you to the seat next to him. You'll go to the bathroom, and when you come back from taking a wee, the guy will hand you a $2,000 check. You don't need anyone else's help but mine. When you've had that in your life, then to then do something honest and give back 10 grand is easy. Because you don't need it. It's by lokimi. A lot of times in life when something happens that comes our way, which is really good, it's not only bad things, which is God kind of tapping us on the shoulder. It's also really good things. And oftentimes those good things are there, not just like, like randomly placed in our life, but it's there because immediately after that good thing, something's coming that's going to require the lesson that you learned from that etzbei lokimi. So you get tapped on the shoulder. Ask yourself. Ask yourself, what's happening? What's going on? What's taking place? What am I going through? What am I dealing with? You get hit, turn around. Turn around. What a shame it would be to have something that could have been kapara, and it's not kapara, and you know why it's not kapara? Because he didn't say kapara. To not say kapara after you got a slap is like to have a check come in the mail and not cash it. Hashem should bless us always to have our eyes wide open.